0: This is Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks, and this episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. And with a warm welcome, everyone from South Lake Tahoe, I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and in the virtual studio today is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. And we are stoked to be joined by our colleague, principal co-host at Health Innovation Media, Douglas Goldstein, also known as eFuturist. Who joins us for this roundtable session on what we've titled Trump Care as the Puzzle Emerges by virtue of recent nominations to both uh, HHS and CMS? With more on that later. So, welcome, Fred.
1: Hello, Greg. Glad to be on another week of the show.
0: Oh, me too. And welcome, Doug.
2: It's great to be here, fresh off the Capitol Hill, watching the rodeo happen.
0: Awesome. So, for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, which is a Jacksonville, Florida based consulting firm. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the advisory board of Care Innovations Validation Institute. He is the past chair and former board member of Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter at FSGoldstein. Douglas Goldstein, a.k.a. at eFuturist, is a popular keynote speaker and a subject matter expert in all things mobile, nano, digital, and their convergence into the emerging space of precision medicine. As an innovator in digital health, precision medicine and population health, Doug specializes in applying the right mix of mobile, social, media, gamification, big data analytics, customer science, and emerging technologies for improved performance and outcomes. As the e futurist, he delivers the latest insights on health transformation through innovation, collaboration, and leadership. Popular keynotes and workshops include Innovate Now, Digital Doctoring Today, DNA and Nano Doctoring Tomorrow, and iLeadership. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician led ventures. I publish and principally author acowatch.com, healthinnovationmedia.com, and precisionmedicine.center, and if you're in the market for digital media content development, curation, and engagement for your hospital, health system, phys- physician venture, or conference social media amplification, ping me on Twitter via 2 guru or email at greg at Media.com with two G. So with that introduction. Let's dive into today's roundtable on the Trump health reform agenda and what's emerging as potential directional vectors. And it's been a busy week with uh, the pieces of the likely Trump administration taking form via the nomination of Representative Tom Price to steward the massive bureaucracy of the Department of Health and Human Services with Seema Verma at his side, as proposed administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Administration. These nominations, if confirmed, will perhaps catalyze and enable the fulfillment of the repeal and replace agenda of the House and Senate Republicans during the Obama presidency. And Dr. Price is a board certified orthopedic surgeon and a vocal opponent of the ACA with several bills sponsored to enable the ACA's repeal and replacement. He is no friend of Medicare, Medicaid, or the broader ecosystem characterizing the current state of the US healthcare market. Therefore, my, this is um, perhaps best to view what is likely to emerge as Trump care through the vision of uh, Dr. Price or Representative Price. And at a June symposium sponsored by the American Enterprise Institute, Representative Price, the chair of the House Budget Committee, previewed his vision of healthcare reform with the following statements. The ACA violates all the principles that all of us hold dear. Accessible, affordable, a health system of the highest quality and a system that provides choices for the American people and for patients. What we have put together is a patient-centered plan that respects those principles, that allows everyone to have access to the coverage they want and not what the government forces them to buy. To solve the insurance challenges of portability and pre-existing to save hundreds of billions of dollars. A few specific examples I'd like to share with you include the individual and small group market. Those of you who recognize or are in that area, you appreciate that it has been destroyed. And so we want to reconstitute that market and make it responsive to patients and allow them to purchase the kind of coverage that they want and not what the government forces them to buy. Second, we waste hundreds of billions of dollars due to lawsuit abuse in this country. The practice of defensive medicine, and instead of putting up a banding on it, we propose a bold and robust solution that would allow physicians through practice guidelines to basically have a safe harbor. If your doctor does the right thing for a given diagnosis or set of symptoms, then they ought to be able to use that as an affirmative defense in a court of law. That's the kind of proposal that we put forward, and finally, and third, in addition to the healthcare system that works for patients, is one that must respect the physician-patient relationship. And so, what we do is incentivize the highest quality of care without bureaucratic intervention. This better way, this plan right here, that puts forward positive, common sense solutions for Medicare, Medicaid, and for the larger healthcare arena. So that we respect the principles of accessibility, affordability, and quality, including choices. So I know that's a lot. Let's uh, kick it over to you, Fred. I know you've prepared quite a bit for this and uh, sourced a considerable series of links that are um, in this conversation at the moment. So uh, why don't you kick it off and start where you feel most comfortable?
1: (laughs) and <laughs> great to be with you again, Greg and Doug, and, and do another week on Pop Health Week. It's um, I think uh, everybody's uh, still coming through a bit stunned by the election. And obviously now we know who the two key players are that have been nominated at least or will be nominated to fill the, those two most important slots on the healthcare side of this thing, which is the secretary of HHS and the head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And you know, when you kind of step back from it and you look at some of these individual components that you just mentioned that um, Representative Price uh, mentioned as, as possibilities, um, what we have to recognize is this is a gigantic bill, and it's very easy to say repeal and replace, um, but certain parts of it can be done through certain legislative processes, and other parts may be able to be done through administrative-type um rules and regulations or changes in how certain things are enforced, but to just drop it, um, obviously I don't think anybody, everybody's now recognized is really not something that can, that can happen without something else to put in its place because you've got close to 20 million people who are covered by insurance. So I think, And also, I should add that uh, President-elect Trump made the comment that there are some pieces of this bill he'd actually like to keep after meeting with President Obama, which included the insurance up to age 26 and uh, some of the things like potentially no pre-existing condition, uh, you know, not not having pre-existing conditions uh, affect your coverage. So I think um, there are certainly much more conservative proposals that will now be pushed into what will probably be some sort of a bill or or a a proposal that that begins to get vetted uh, and and those will probably correspond with the pieces that they want to take out and how do you make that transition from taking some of those pieces out to putting other pieces in place while maybe keeping a few of them you know as they currently are so so it's gonna be interesting to watch you know there were a number of republican bills up there Um, the one thing you can say that we know about the Affordable Care Act at this point is we do have Roughly 20 million more people covered. I think we're down to about 9% uninsured. And if you think about that, I think I believe that's the lowest number in history. But at the same time, we do have costs that are going through the roof. And so there are some other issues we can probably, probably get into. But I don't know that anybody yet has something in place that actually is going to begin to bring the cost down. Obviously, ideas like um, um, tort reform will help. But there are bigger issues driving costs than that, and I don't know that those are necessarily be addressed by, e- by either. They weren't addressed in the prior bill. I don't know they'll be addressed in the new one.
0: So, Doug, how about your opening take on uh, what you've heard so far?
2: I think we don't know. I think that there's too many moving forces. Um, I think we can identify by the history in Indiana and Kentucky that um, Medicaid recipients uh, Indiana, where Verma was uh, the advisor to uh, Vice President-elect Pence, is having a, did accept uh, federal money for the Medicaid program, but they added co-pays, perhaps as low as $4 a a month for Medicaid recipients who were receiving that. There were other stipulations related to volunteerism and others in terms of getting involved in the community. So um, there was a a significant so I think we have indicators of what could and based on conversations I'm having on the Hill um, clearly empowering communities uh, liberating the state programs to be more innovative um, you know is in the cards how it gets enacted nobody knows for sure because we're still months uh, if not years away from moving through the legislative process and enacting regulatory and Legal changes, so it's uh, it's interesting to watch. And I understand you have uh, you've been uh, doing ACA Watch, but you also now have Trump Care Watch. Uh, so you're uh, <laughs> you're going to be our hawk. You're going to be our eyes and ears on the uh, changing environment. Right. I understand it.
0: Minor correction so, given it, it, it's the so called Trump Care hashtag has appeared on Twitter, so it's part of that narrative is evolving as to what is Trump Care. But uh, the whole idea was to create, uh, uh, since most of this perhaps takes directional focus based on representative prices nation, I thought. Price watch. Price watch would be a, a good way to pool tweets and actually build a repository of information <laughs> about what's happening. So for those of our listeners, I might also say that between the three of us, and I won't tell you who's who, you can probably tell by the tone, is we have definitely a middle ro- the road guy, a, a right leaning and a left leaning perspective. So you got them all here today. So why don't we <laughs> so why don't we unbundle these pieces and really let's start with. Block Grants, uh, that's been around a while, these waivers and the idea of empowering states to essentially run with, configure, finance, and organize the delivery system in their state. Uh, it's had a spotty track record so far. W- what do you have on that, Fred?
1: Well, you know, ha- having been around Medicaid a while, I think um, if there's one thing we can say is uh, the current system doesn't work great. uh. You know, it does provide benefits to individuals. Um, There are many providers who refuse to accept Medicaid. The networks can be a little bit different. Um, And so I do think there is a need within Medicaid to try some new ideas and look at some new approaches as to how you um, deliver those services, how you work with the provider networks. Um, And so I think giving more flexibility to to states to do certain experiments like that or to try things is probably a, a good idea obviously at the same time you have a population that 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 needs certain services they just don't have access or capabilities to do certain things and so you have to balance that out with appropriate approaches and um, I, I, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, which states come out quickly. Should they go to block grants and say, "Hey, let's 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 do that," and I'm going to revamp my Medicaid program, um, and which which sit back a little bit. I think I, I remember back to the days when um, Governor Bush was here in Florida, and he introduced some really innovative legislation to risk adjust um, payments to health plans and and fully risk adjust them based on healthcare criteria. And at the end of the day, the insurers really didn't want that, so they actually inserted some language and gutted his bill. You may see that some of these ideas may actually, once again, just like happened with the Affordable Care Act, get stymied or adjusted by the various players to benefit them and ultimately not create as much change or fix certain issues as we hope.
0: And, Doug, any thoughts?
2: In scanning through the comparisons between Trump Care and Obamacare, I think what we're getting is surface analysis. So it's easy to say let's require more price transparency uh, in the Trump Care plan, but the complexity of healthcare is off the charts. I mean, uh, treating your cancer is very different than treating my cancer, and even my cancer three weeks from now is going to be different. So uh, the, we're not human widgets, and the variability. Throws a lot of these gross assumptions quite off. Oh, more more transparency, health savings accounts. Well, health savings accounts are only with people for high deductible health plans. Um, and then you look at specifics like, you know, prices, recommendation, and what he's been submitting every year with to replace and repeal says that someone over 50 can deduct up to three thousand dollars a year in their health health insurance. You know, get a tax credit up to three thousand. Well, you have people that with families paying twenty twenty four thousand a year for their, their health insurance, three thousand isn't much of a tax credit, and then you have uh, President Elect Trump saying, well, they can deduct their entire uh, tax amount. So, uh, you know, there's we're going to have lots of discussions around the specifics as it comes to crafting these plans because of the level of complexity in each of these categories.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. At some level, it almost seems like that offer does not get the fact that premiums have just skyrocketed to the point that it's a de minimis contribution to what would really be the total cost burden by the family of carrying the gap between whatever the tax credit is versus the actual cost of the premium, whether it's individual or, or small group market. So how do you, so, you know, I know so that I believe, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah so go ahead. So, Greg, that brings up an interesting point, And I happened to go to a big data meetup uh, last night and it was on, it was on insurance, but it was the guys who sell a ton of property and casualty and car insurance, things like that. And they made the comment when comparing it to health insurance, that insurance is really there for, unusual or high cost activities that don't occur a lot. And that's why, he, he, and he even said health insurance is really not insurance because we're paying for you to go to your doctor or primary care visits and all this stuff that just routinely happens. And 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 I think what's happened is, in a sense, and maybe it's an, it's an underlying fundamental we need to look at, and I don't know if this administration will do it or not, is at the end of the day, somebody's got to say can't get paid that much anymore. We don't need that much of those services. And because and as Dave Chase or Dan Monroe will say, you know, we've had on the shows, we've created this system that just continues to grow costs. And so the question is, is the is the administration at the end of the day going to be able to put in systems and uh, an insurance product that actually begins to drive some of that stuff out appropriately? And I don't know that I've heard that yet. And in fact, when uh, I think Representative Price made the comment as a doctor, we got to get rid of these value-based payment models. But that may be the only thing that allows us to drive some of that cost the other way.
0: Right. And it's interesting, the uh, uh, CAPG issued a statement that they look forward, CAPG being the – California, formerly the California Association of Physician Groups, who've now morphed into a nationwide trade and advocacy group, who, who are about upleveling uh, the core competencies in uh, risk statu- stratification, risk assumption, and and viability under value-based healthcare, said so they look forward to working with um, uh, Representative Price as. Uh, as administrator of HHS, and they threw in the, the the caveat of it being to preserve essentially a value-based health care agenda. So there's going to be some conflict there if he's in fact confirmed, which he probably will be. But the odds are, how, how I don't understand how he can claim hundreds of billions of dollars in savings unless there is a real pain inflicted on providers, hospitals, physicians, ancillaries, all the practitioners who are out there grinding away day in and day out, trying to provide services at the point of care. No one's talking about reducing fees. So how does this happen?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. One of the other things that I did find interesting on uh, President-elect Trump's site talk about healthcare is this idea of allowing people to import their drugs. And that you know, clearly is one area where one, the pharmaceutical manufacturers are gonna probably fight that tooth and nail. But two, they do pay less overseas. You know, we know, having talked to the folks at Health City Cayman Island, you that you can get, you know, hepatitis C treatment for twenty grand, including travel. Um, and so I think something like that actually would drive prices for pharmaceuticals in the US down as the manufacturers tried to control that. Um but you're right. I think the issue of where do you get the right. hundreds of billions got to come out of somewhere. And, you know, we've all, right. we thought it, it's got to come out of the hospitals at some point, but they're certainly not positioning themselves to do that.
0: Right. Right. So, so let me just, you want to let spend me. Dollars on, go ahead, Doug. If you
2: have a dollar to spend on, if you have a dollar to spend on healthcare and you're spending 30% on management or the health insurance piece, you have 30 cents there. You're leaving 70% for, the providers or the, the pharma companies, and the pharma companies are global players. They're not American companies just selling here. And the reason there's one thing to go
1: back on with that uh, is that the insurers are only getting 15%. Remember, they have to spend 85% of their premium under the Affordable Care Act on medical costs. So of course, 15% yeah, there for 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 health insurers. Other than what can go into medical costs are certain uh, chronic care management fees and quality improvement fees. But other than that, all of their admin is in the
0: 15%. Right, but let's remember that that 15 that 85% medical loss ratio is typically or 80 based on the group size, is uh, typically floating with a, with a generally rising premium. Uh, uh, structure. So, but let, let's let's stay on this uh, this offshoring or outsourcing uh, potential. Uh, t- yeah, yeah. Representative Rice is an orthopedic surgeon. Okay, that is uh, according to MedPage Today for their 2016 physician compensation survey, the highest paid specialty. Do you think that uh, these bundled pricing and these outsourcing of packages say? the Narayana model, the offshore model uh, with uh, that is focusing on uh, cardiac packages, but looking to leverage those services into other high-cost specialty services, i.e. orthopedics. Do you think he would support something like that?
1: Um, given what I've seen so far in the discussions, probably not. And so, again, you're going to have this selective thing. Oh, we can go get the pharmaceutical manufacturers. But now we can't touch the doctors, so it'll be interesting to watch. And that's why I think, on the one hand, it, it 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 does help to have a physician potentially who has a lot of policy and management experience in the role of HHS secretary. But it can also hinder it. And I think that's why I think you posted up on Twitter both Cap G's letter and wasn't there another one you put up there as well?
0: There was a, uh, the American right. Association of Family Medicine and the American Medical Association, which were all very yeah, diplomatic. AMA,
1: yeah. Hey, we like it. Yeah. We like it because they believe that they'll be protected in this new environment.
0: Right. Yeah, because one of the statements, the principals talked about restoring the physician-patient relationship, and who can argue with that? But the bottom line is the hard decisions are really not going to be made unless they really go back to the drawing board about oh my god, we have really co-created a monster here and how do we fix it?
2: The fundamental problem in the healthcare costs is behavioral. So we're a consumer society, we have an obesity epidemic, and numerous other diseases many of the diseases driving the healthcare costs are chronic disease diseases that are diseases by choice. Physicians don't change those behaviors. We know it in diabetes. We well, know there's a flip- that People change their own behaviors. They're going to make the decisions. And so the Republicans, Democrats, whatever, however you choose to solve it, we have a cost escalation problem because we're a consumer society and we overeat. And that drives a number of other problems that we spend more and more money trying to fix. And the doctor can't fix the chronic care problem. They can be part of the solution, but... Fee for service is not, returning to fee for service is not going to help us fix that because it's a reactive model.
1: I think there's another piece to this though, and this is what's interesting. We always, and you know, I came out of the population health side, and it's always about, you know, pushing the, um, that it's a population health problem, it's a demand side problem, and certainly there are issues with the demand side, but there's a, a real interesting study done by, um, Don Berwick, and I'm just going to pull this up real quick because I was actually writing uh, and included part of it in something today that I, that I was going to post. And essentially, there's a um, there's a he, they projected out what were the drivers of these healthcare costs, and it turns out that if you look at them uh, for the GDP, they were fraud and abuse, pricing failures. Administrative complexity, over-treatment, failures of care coordination, which were very small, and failures of care delivery. They're supply-side problems. And, and, that's, and so, yes, we have, we have this burden of individuals who have gotten sicker. But at the same time, the supply system is, is just overdoing everything. And, you know, we have pricing problems when you compare our prices to other countries. We have utilization of service problems when you compare our utilization of service to other countries. We have fraud and abuse. And so th- those kinds of things, we, I think we need to begin to demand that the supply side take those things out. We just, you know, the Institute of Medicine says 30% is waste. So that's, that's a trillion dollars.
2: Yeah. Well, easier said than done. Given that the balance sheet of every hospital in the country, a major employer, depends on that stuff. So, you know, we have a system that's that's structured for transactions, and that's and we have value looming on the horizon. And to the extent that the momentum on value continues, is but what's the alternative? How do we control health care costs, which is a federal problem, because 40% of the people in the country have VA, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. So we have 40% of the population that has government-paid health insurance. So we have a challenge with a reimbursement system that doesn't reward health because it's a disease-sick system.
1: Right. And the question is, have you seen or heard anything coming out of the new administration that looks like it might address that?
0: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely not. So listen, guys, we're get, coming down to the, the end of the broadcast. Let, let, let's revisit at least the three bullets that are at the core here of the price proposal. And the, the first one is the, uh, the individual and small group market, which he claims has been destroyed and that what he wants to do is reconstituted to make it responsive to patients and allow them to purchase the kind of coverage they want. Now, to me, what that goes to is the, um, the essential health benefits that have been uh, uh, defined by the Affordable Care Act. And then secondly, uh, he wants to undo that so that there are choices like mini-meds or so-called junk insurance and there's the elimination of the uh, of, of the mandate so it, all of this collapses in terms of having a socialized risk structure that basically has everyone all in and therefore more fairly allocates the availability of covered services based on community rating how's he going to do that
1: <laughs> i think that's a million dollar question you know you- they said we're not going to mandate insurance, but if you don't do that, you know how do you get the ratings right? Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what they think they can put in versus what actually happens and and what might or might not work.
2: Okay, I have it, it's not going to work. We're we're taking eight years of progress. <laughs> We have eight years of progress with Thank the Affordable Doug. Care Act. People, <laughs> people, people started to understand it. It took eight years, and people started buying in, even though the risk and the subsidies to the insurance companies was defunded. So premiums went up because of the Senate defunding of the, the, the cushion, the risk corridor. As the, as people recognized this, it was a solution that made sense. So, we're going to change the rules again and i don't care how you change it more liberal more whatever you're going to change the rules again it's going to take decades for people to understand th- the rules as they change so i think any changes are going to continue to result in a system that just isn't going to be fixed and the cost escalation problem is going to continue well thank you ran target
0: yeah <laughs> There's so much more. I, I, hate I, to be to, only... I
2: hate to be upbeat on that. Yeah, <laughs>
0: right. exactly. And, and I can't resist, you know, between the block grant thing, the undoing of the mandate and bring back junk insurance or mini meds, and then the hundreds of billions of dollars waste due to um, medical malpractice and this idea of a safe harbor that if we just have cookbook medicine, you know, i.e. evidence-based medicine, that there's some kind of uh, affirmative defense in a court of law. That's the other perspective. And finally, the addition to uh, a a restoring the physician patient relationship is basically, I would think, this concierge or direct practice or retainer medicine alternative, which does great for primary care services. But I think this is no applicability in tertiary specialty services. So I think this is mythology. But we shall see what evolves. So, I want to thank my guest, Douglas Goldstein, <laughs> the futurist, for his time and uh, insights today, as well as my cap, co captain here and co founder here at Pop Health Week. So, for those of you listening in, more will be revealed as, as uh, these vectors of the Trump care and uh, Disha of health reform take form over the next several weeks and months. So, with that, this is Greg Masters saying bye now. <laughs>